The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, Volume 5, Chapter 58, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 58, The First Crusade, Part 2. Recording by Claude Banta. Of the chiefs and soldiers who marched to the Holy Sepulchre, I will dare to affirm that all were prompted by the spirit of enthusiasm, the belief of merit, the hope of reward, and the assurance of divine aid. But I am equally persuaded that in many it was not the soul, that in some it was not the leading principle of action. The use and abuse of religion are feeble to stem, they are strong and irresistible to impel, the stream of national manners. Against the private wars of the barbarians, their bloody tournaments, licentious love, and judicial duels, the popes and synods might ineffectually thunder. It is a more easy task to provoke the metaphysical disputes of the Greeks, to drive into the cloister the victims of anarchy or despotism, to sanctify the patience of slaves and cowards, or to assume the merit of the humanity and benevolence of modern Christians. War and exercise were the reigning passions of the Franks or Latins. They were enjoined, as a penance, to gratify those passions, to visit distant lands, and to draw their swords against the nation of the East. Their victory, or even their attempt, would immortalize the names of the intrepid heroes of the cross, and the purest piety could not be insensible to the most splendid prospect of military glory. In the petty quarrels of Europe they shed the blood of their friends and countrymen for the acquisition, perhaps, of a castle or a village. They could march with alacrity against the distant and hostile nations who were devoted to their arms. Their fancy already grasped the golden scepters of Asia, and the conquest of Apulia and Sicily by the Normans might exalt to royalty the hopes of the most private adventurer. Christendom, in her rudest state, must have yielded to the climate and cultivation of the Mahometan countries, and their natural and artificial wealth had been magnified by the tales of pilgrims and the gifts of an imperfect commerce. The vulgar, both the great and small, were taught to believe every wonder of lands flowing with milk and honey, of mines and treasures, of gold and diamonds, of palaces of marble and jasper, and of odoriferous groves of cinnamon and frankincense. In this earthly paradise each warrior depended on his sword to carve a plenteous and honorable establishment which he measured only by the extent of his wishes. Their vassals and soldiers trusted their fortunes to God and their master. The spoils of a Turkish emir might enrich the meanest follower of the camp, and the flavor of the wines, the beauty of the Grecian women, were temptations more adapted to the nature than to the profession of the champions of the cross. The love of freedom was a powerful incitement to the multitudes who were oppressed by feudal or ecclesiastical tyranny. Under this holy sign, the peasants and burghers, who were attached to the servitude of the glebe, 
might escape from a haughty lord and transplant themselves and their families to a land of liberty. The monk might release himself from the discipline of his convent. The debtor might suspend the accumulation of usury and the pursuit of his creditors, and outlaws and malefactors of every caste might continue to brave the laws and elude the punishment of their crimes. These motives were potent and numerous. When we have singly computed their weight on the mind of each individual, we must add the infinite series, the multiplying powers of example and fashion. The first proselytes became the warmest and most effectual missionaries of the cross. Among their friends and countrymen, they preached the duty, the merit, and the recompense of their holy vow, and the most reluctant hearers were insensibly drawn within the whirlpool of persuasion and authority. The martial youths were fired by the reproach or suspicion of cowardice, the opportunity of visiting with an army the sepulture of Christ was embraced by the old and infirm, by women and children, who consulted rather their zeal than their strength, and those who in the evening had derided the folly of their companions, were the most eager the ensuing day to tread in their footsteps. The ignorance, which magnified the hopes, diminished the perils of the enterprise. Since the Turkish conquest, the paths of pilgrimage were obliterated. The chiefs themselves had an imperfect notion of the length of the way and the state of their enemies, and such was the stupidity of the people that, at the sight of the first city or castle beyond the limits of their knowledge, they were ready to ask whether that was not the Jerusalem, the term and object of their labors. Yet the more prudent of the crusaders, who were not sure that they should be fed from heaven with a shower of quails or manna, provided themselves with those precious metals which in every country are the representatives of every commodity. To defray, according to their rank, the expenses of the road, princes alienated their provinces, nobles their land and castles, peasants their cattle and the instruments of husbandry. The value of property was depreciated by the eager competition of multitudes, while the price of arms and horses was raised to an exorbitant height by the wants and impatience of the buyers. Those who remained at home, with sense and money, were enriched by the epidemical disease. The sovereigns acquired at a cheap rate the domains of their vassals, and the ecclesiastical purchasers completed the payment by the assurance of their prayers. The cross, which was commonly sued on the garment in cloth or silk, was inscribed by some zealots on their skin. A hot iron or indelible liquor was applied to perpetuate the mark, and a crafty monk who showed the miraculous impression on his breast, was repaid with the popular veneration and the richest benefices of Palestine. The 15th of August had been fixed in the Council of Claremont for the departure of the pilgrims, but the day was anticipated by the thoughtless and needy crowd of plebeians, and I shall briefly dispatch the calamities which they inflicted and suffered before I enter on the more serious and successful enterprise of the chiefs. Early in the spring, 
from the confines of France and Lorraine, above sixty thousand of the populace of both sexes flocked round the first missionary of the crusade, and pressed him with clamorous importunity to lead them to the holy sepulchre. The hermit, assuming the character, without the talents or authority of a general, impelled or obeyed the forward impulse of his votaries along the banks of the Rhine and Danube. Their wants and numbers soon compelled them to separate, and his lieutenant, Walter the Penniless, a valiant though needy soldier, conducted a vanguard of pilgrims whose condition may be determined from the proportion of eight horsemen to fifteen thousand foot. The example and footsteps of Peter were closely pursued by another fanatic, the monk Godescal, whose sermons had swept away fifteen or twenty thousand peasants from the villages of Germany. Their rear was again pressed by a herd of two hundred thousand, the most stupid and savage refuse of the people, who mingled with their devotion a brutal license of rapine, prostitution, and drunkenness. Some counts and gentlemen, at the head of three thousand horse, attended the motions of the multitude to partake in the spoil. But their genuine leaders, may we credit such folly, were a goose and a goat, who were carried in front, and to whom these worthy Christians ascribed an infusion of the divine spirit. Of these, and of other bands of enthusiasts, the first and most easy warfare was against the Jews, the murderers of the Son of God. In the trading cities of the Moselle and the Rhine, their colonies were numerous and rich, and they enjoyed, under the protection of the emperor and the bishops, the free exercise of their religion. At Verdun, Treves, Mentz, Spires, Worms, many thousands of that unhappy people were pillaged and massacred, nor had they felt a more bloody stroke since the persecution of Hadrian, a remnant was saved by the firmness of their bishops, who accepted a feigned and transient conversion, but the more obstinate Jews opposed their fanaticism to the fanaticism of the Christians, barricaded their houses, and precipitating themselves, their families, and their wealth into the rivers or the flames, disappointed the malice, or at least the avarice, of their implacable foes. Between the frontiers of Austria and the seat of the Byzantine monarchy, the crusaders were compelled to traverse an interval of six hundred miles, the wild and desolate countries of Hungary and Bulgaria. The soil is fruitful and intersected with rivers, but it was then covered with morasses and forests, which spread to a boundless extent whenever man has ceased to exercise his dominion over the earth. Both nations had imbibed the rudiments of Christianity. The Hungarians were ruled by their native princes, the Bulgarians by a lieutenant of the Greek emperor, but, on the slightest provocation, their ferocious nature was rekindled, and ample provocation was afforded by the disorders of the first pilgrims. Agriculture must have been unskillful and languid among a people whose cities were built of reeds and timber, which were deserted in the summer season for the tents of hunters and shepherds. A scanty supply of provisions was rudely demanded, forcibly seized, and greedily consumed, and on the first quarrel, 
the crusaders gave a loose to indignation and revenge. But their ignorance of the country, of war, and of discipline, exposed them to every snare. The Greek prefect of Bulgaria commanded a regular force. At the trumpet of the Hungarian king, the eighth or the tenth of his martial subjects bent their bows and mounted on horseback. Their policy was insidious, and their retaliation on these pious robbers was unrelenting and bloody. About a third of the naked fugitives, and the hermit Peter was of the number, escaped to the Thracian mountains, and the emperor, who respected the pilgrimage and succor of the Latins, conducted them by secure and easy journeys to Constantinople, and advised them to await the arrival of their brethren. For a while they remembered their faults and losses, but no sooner were they revived by the hospitable entertainment than their venom was again inflamed. They stung their benefactor, and neither gardens nor palaces nor churches were safe from their depredations. For his own safety, Alexius allured them to pass over to the Asiatic side of the Bosphorus, but their blind impetuosity soon urged them to desert the station which he had assigned, and to rush headlong against the Turks, who occupied the road to Jerusalem. The hermit, conscious of his shame, had withdrawn from the camp to Constantinople, and his lieutenant, Walter the Penniless, who was worthy of a better command, attempted without success to introduce some order and prudence among the herd of savages. They separated in quest of prey, and themselves fell an easy prey to the arts of the sultan. By a rumor that their foremost companions were rioting in the spoils of his capital, Solomon tempted the main body to descend into the plain of Nice. They were overwhelmed by the Turkish arrows, and a pyramid of bones informed their companions of the place of their defeat. Of the first crusaders, three hundred thousand had already perished, before a single city was rescued from the infidels, before their graver and more noble brethren had completed the preparations of their enterprise. None of the great sovereigns of Europe embarked their persons in the first crusade. The emperor Henry the Fourth was not disposed to obey the summons of the Pope. Philip I of France was occupied by his pleasures. William Rufus of England, by a recent conquest, the kings of Spain were engaged in a domestic war against the Moors, and the northern monarchs of Scotland, Denmark, Sweden, and Poland were yet strangers to the passions and interests of the South. The religious ardor was more strongly felt by the princes of the second order, who held an important place in the feudal system. Their situation will naturally cast, under four distinct heads, the review of their names and characters, but I may escape some needless repetition by observing at once that courage and the exercise of arms are the common attribute of these Christian adventurers. 1. The first rank, both in war and council, is justly due to Godfrey of Bouillon, and happy would it have been for the crusaders if they had trusted themselves to the sole conduct of that accomplished hero, a worthy representative of Charlemagne, from whom he was descended in the female line. 
His father was of the noble race of the Counts of Boulogne. Brabant, the lower province of Lorraine, was the inheritance of his mother, and by the emperor's bounty he was himself invested with that ducal title which has been improperly transferred to his lordship of Bouillon in the Ardennes. In the service of Henry the Fourth, he bore the great standard of the empire and pierced with his lance the breast of Rodolph, the rebel king. Godfrey was the first who ascended the walls of Rome, and his sickness, his vow, perhaps his remorse, for bearing arms against the Pope, confirmed an early resolution of visiting the Holy Sepulchre, not as a pilgrim, but a deliverer. His valor was matured by prudence and moderation, his piety, though blind, was sincere, and in the tumult of a camp he practiced the real and fictitious virtues of a convent. Superior to the private factions of the chiefs, he reserved his enmity for the enemies of Christ, and though he gained a kingdom by the attempt, his pure and disinterested zeal was acknowledged by his rivals. Godfrey of Bouillon was accompanied by his two brothers, by Justus the Elder, who had succeeded to the county of Boulogne, and by the younger Baldwin, a character of more ambiguous virtue. The Duke of Lorraine was alike celebrated on either side of the Rhine. From his birth and education he was equally conversant with the French and Teutonic languages. The barons of France, Germany, and Lorraine assembled their vassals, and the confederate force that marched under his banner was composed of fourscore thousand foot and about ten thousand horse. 2. In the parliament that was held at Paris in the king's presence about two months after the council of Clermont, Hugh, count of Vermandois, was the most conspicuous of the princes who assumed the cross, but the appellation of the great was applied not so much to his merit or possessions, though neither were contemptible, as to the royal birth of the brother of the king of France. Robert, duke of Normandy, was the eldest son of William the Conqueror, but on his father's death he was deprived of the kingdom of England by his own indolence and the activity of his brother Rufus. The worth of Robert was degraded by an excessive levity and easiness of temper, his cheerfulness seduced him to the indulgence of pleasure. His profuse liberality impoverished the prince and people. His indiscriminate clemency multiplied the number of offenders, and the amiable qualities of a private man became the essential defects of a sovereign. For the trifling sum of ten thousand marks, he mortgaged Normandy during his absence to the English usurper but his engagement and behavior in the holy war announced in Robert a reformation of manners, and restored him in some degree to the public esteem. Another Robert was Count of Flanders, a royal province, which in this century gave three queens to the thrones of France, England, and Denmark. He was surnamed the Sword and Lance of the Christians, but in the exploits of a soldier he sometimes forgot the duties of a general. Stephen, Count of Chartres, of Blois, and of Troyes, was one of the richest princes of the age, and the number of his castles has been compared 
to the three hundred and sixty-five days of the year. His mind was improved by literature, and in the council of the chiefs, the eloquent Stephen was chosen to discharge the office of their president. These four were the principal leaders of the French, the Normans, and the pilgrims of the British Isles. But the list of the barons, who were possessed of three or four towns, would exceed, says a contemporary, the catalogue of the Trojan War. 3. In the south of France, the command was assumed by Adamar, Bishop of Poi, the Pope Legate, and by Raymond, Count of St. Giles and Tholouse, who added the prouder titles of Duke of Narbonne and Marquise of Provence. The former was a respectable prelate, alike qualified for this world and the next. The latter was a veteran warrior, who had fought against the Saracens of Spain, and who consecrated his declining age not only to the deliverance, but to the perpetual service of the Holy Sepulchre. His experience and riches gave him a strong ascendant in the Christian camp, whose distress he was often able and sometimes willing to relieve. But it was easier for him to extort the praise of the infidels than to preserve the love of his subjects and associates. His eminent qualities were clouded by a temper haughty, envious, and obstinate, and though he resigned an ample patrimony for the cause of God, his piety in the public opinion was not exempt from avarice and ambition. A mercantile rather than a martial spirit prevailed among his provincials, a common name which included the natives of Auvergne and Languedoc, the vassals of the kingdom of Burgundy or Arles. From the adjacent frontier of Spain he drew a band of hardy adventurers. As he marched through Lombardy, a crowd of Italians flocked to his standard, and his united force consisted of one hundred thousand horse and foot. If Raymond was the first to enlist and the last to depart, the delay may be excused by the greatness of his preparation and the promise of an everlasting farewell. 4. The name of Bohemond, the son of Robert Guiscard, was already famous by his double victory over the Greek emperor, but his father's will had reduced him to the principality of Tarentum, and the remembrance of his eastern trophies, till he was awakened by the rumor and passage of the French pilgrims. It is in the person of this Norman chief that we may seek for the coolest policy and ambition with a small allay of religious fanaticism. His conduct may justify a belief that he had secretly directed the design of the Pope, which he affected to second with the astonishment and zeal. At the siege of Amalfi, his example and discourse inflamed the passions of a confederate army. He instantly tore his garment to supply crosses for the numerous candidates, and prepared to visit Constantinople and Asia at the head of ten thousand horse and twenty thousand foot. Several princes of the Norman race accompanied this veteran general, and his cousin Tancray was the partner rather than the servant of the war. In the accomplished character of Tancray we discover all the virtues of a perfect knight, the true spirit of chivalry, which inspired the generous sentiments and social offices of man far better than the base philosophy or the baser religion 
of the times. End of chapter 58, part 2.